You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked-about charities. I'm Art Taylor, and it's hard to talk about giving without spending some time talking about religion. I've always said that there are probably four major reasons why people give. Some people are just humanitarian. Others give because they want to get something in return. And some people give because it just feels good. And we've seen through research that giving does ignite certain parts of our brain to give us pleasure. But I think one of the big reasons people give is because of their faith. In fact, studies have shown that people who are part of religious organizations tend to give more and more frequently. And there are probably lots of reasons for that. But I would say that for those of us who are part of a faith community, we tend to give because we have a deity that has been good to us. And we believe it's important that we share what that deity has given to us with others, particularly those in need. So we're going to talk a little bit about religion today. And specifically, we want to talk about religious leaders, because clearly leadership in religion is key. I think one of the biggest responsibilities that a person could have is being a religious leader, because their job is to interpret sacred text and to bring to us information that can help us lead better and more spiritual and fulfilling lives and ultimately to get to that next place which some of us call heaven and to also make sure that we're living lives that are meaningful and lives that are contributing to others and so religious leaders are clearly important in bringing that about. But do religious leaders get the opportunity to think? I know for most of us, just spending time thinking is probably a luxury with the pace of life and the speed with which we have to make decisions. Sometimes our lives are on automatic pilot and we don't get to think. And as a result, sometimes we don't make the best decisions. Well, for a religious leader, I would imagine they don't have the luxury of being on automatic pilot. They have to think they have to take time and make sure that the decisions they're making are right for their religious communities and right for them. 
And so what I want to do today is have the opportunity to talk with Cherie Harder, who is the president of an organization that pushes religious leaders to think. And Cherie is going to tell us all about the work of the Trinity Forum. And by the way, Cherie has an amazing background. Uh, she's president of the Trinity Forum, and she also previously served as policy advisor to a Senate majority leader. She was senior counsel to the chairperson of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And she also, by the way, graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University and has a postgraduate diploma in literature from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. She's also, and this is where I met her, she is a former now board member of Convergence Policy, an organization that also encourages people to think. And so, Cherie, I want to just welcome you to the Heart of Giving podcast, and I can't wait to hear all you have to say about the important work you're doing with religious leaders. Well, thanks for that gracious introduction, Art. It's great to be with you. Well, Cherie, let's jump right in. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm always amazed by how people got to the jobs that they're currently in. And so I want to ask you, uh, is there a story that kind of led you to be the CEO of this organization, Trinity Forum? <laughs> You know, I don't know if there's a great story. It, it was one of those things. I was actually uh, working in the White House. I was the policy and projects director for First Lady Laura Bush and got a call out of the blue from you know a search firm. And I'd always been a huge fan of the Trinity Forum. I'd been involved with them before, just on a volunteer basis as a, a mentor to some of the young people going through the Trinity Forum Academy and on the advisory board for that and just really admired what they do, you know, in that it seemed quite unique and unusual. And, you know, sometimes new opportunities just sort of capture your imagination. And that was uh, one of the times that it happened. And, and looking back, I can certainly say there were elements of previous jobs. As you mentioned, I was a bit of a policy wonk. I worked for think tanks and on Capitol Hill and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Uh, and one of the things I had sort of done in those capacities was at times, whether it's sort of putting a hearing together or at a think tank, even just, you know, convening a group of people to think through different issues and, and really enjoyed it and kind of felt like, oh, like breakthroughs are possible. And I think that's that kind of, you know, idea and, and interest is you know part of what kind of led me to the spot where I'm at now, as well as to convergence, and that you know what we have done on the board of convergence, and what you know convergence aims to do is you know to convene people, build trust, and together you know seek breakthrough solutions. And you know part of what Trinity Forum would do is provide a space and resources for leaders to basically grapple with the big questions of life in the context of faith together. And so, there, you know, looking back, you know, one lives life looking forward. So it's only kind of when you look back, you can kind of see common themes. But there was that common theme in a lot of really uh, diverse and different jobs, I think. Yeah. Well, you mentioned grapple with the important issues in life. 
And so Trinity Forum is doing this. And how does it go about its work? And what would you say are some of the significant accomplishments and outcomes that you're able to achieve? Well, you know, there, there aren't many opportunities for, for those kinds of, that kind of reflection for, for leaders really in any sector, but perhaps particularly for leaders who are in, in ministry. And part of what the forum tries to do is, you know, it's aimed not just at leaders at ministry uh, at all, or, but leaders in all sorts of different sectors to basically set the table for reflection and conversation on the things that matter most. And we do believe that, you know, in general, the big questions of life usually have almost always have a spiritual component. Even coming from the National Endowment of the Humanities, many of the big questions of the humanities, what is a good person? What is the good life? What is a just society? Those are the big human questions. And all of those have a deeply spiritual component too. And so, you know, in many ways, we function sort of as a Christian humanities institute. And we have a number of different programs. We host Socratic forums that are probably somewhat similar to what Aspen does. I know you mentioned you've talked to some of the folks from Aspen. You know, we tend to include Calvin, Augustine, and Luther as in our, our readings as well. With Socratic forums that kind of grapple with some of those big questions. We also host lectures and discussion groups. We host webinars, uh, essentially just interviewing people on various topics, inviting audience questions. Uh, and we also host a lot of reading and discussion groups. And that's actually a, an initiative we're going to be kind of focusing on in the future with the idea that when so much of what kind of ails us as a society, anger, alienation, distraction, and the like, a, a reading group is a tiny little cultural antibody of of sorts, and that it's focused attention on a worthy text dealing with big issues in the context of community and hospitality. So a lot of what we try to do is just set the table for reflection and discussion on what matters most in the belief that we come at this from a Christian point of view, we want to just be upfront about you know, kind of who we are and where we're coming from. We're certainly open to participation for people with all from all faiths and none. We say where we're coming from, but we do believe that in the New Testament, Jesus said the first great commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And part of doing that is reflecting and thinking well. We think largely in community. You know, we have solo thoughts, but our thoughts are always influenced by others. And we try to set the table for where, when and where that can take place. Now, so uh, take me through an event, for instance. Let's say you had a group of people that you brought together. What would be likely to see? What would that experience be like? Well, if we host a Socratic forum, we try to limit that to less than two dozen people. We simply start out with introductions, people talking about why they're there, what interests them about the topic. And we read different texts together. And often we'll literally ask people just to read a passage out loud. And then, as with any Socratic forum, just ask questions and invite people to, to consider the text, what it says, why it means, what it means for them. And one of the things you find in any kind of Socratic discussion is almost a bit of stone soup, in a sense, that people bring 
their own thoughts, their own background, their experiences to it. And it often causes one to think about either the text or a bigger issue in an entirely new way. There have been times where I've listened to people who you know, brought their experiences. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is so related. I hadn't ever thought about it that way. There was at one point a man who seemed to think mostly in military metaphors. I never really think in military metaphors, but my own thinking was really enriched by his perspective and that I saw what he was talking about and I would not have probably gotten there uh, on my own. So a, a Socratic form, people bring their, their own thoughts to a text, but we're also in a sense anchored by the text itself. And texts are chosen, of course, because they have enduring value that stands uh, the test of time. And one thing that often comes out of a forum is that people are not only exposed to the perspectives of other people there, uh, but also the, the perspective embedded in the text itself. And one thing about reading, you know, great works from the past, in many ways, the past is a foreign country. You know, they, they thought differently about various things, both for good and for ill. Because it's a text that has stood this test of time, it's someone who is very thoughtful who, who is writing it. And it, it helps, I think, open one's eyes to the fact that brilliant people can get things wrong. Each age and era has its own assumptions and blind spots. And part of the hope is that it will give us, you know, not only more insight and wisdom, uh, but perhaps also more, more empathy and perspective in that if brilliant minds of previous ages could get big things wrong and there were historical blind spots, what are the blind spots of our own era, our own time? You know, what do we just accept that perhaps we shouldn't, you know, and how do we kind of see more clearly, think more deeply, you know, and hopefully love more wholeheartedly, you know, as a result of, of that kind of knowledge. Uh, I've just been talking about Socratic forums and, you know, we do a lot of other different events. So a lot of you know, the events we do most often are with, once the pandemic struck, of course, we had to pivot from the in-person to the online. So I host an almost weekly uh, webinar, uh, which we just call Trinity Forum Online Conversations, where I have the real pleasure of getting to interview someone um, on a particular topic. You know, often it's, it's authors, uh, but people from really all kind of all walks of life. And then we open it up to, to questions from the audience. And then we usually have discussion groups afterwards where uh, people can stick around and talk about uh, the topic you know, with each other as a way of kind of building community, deepening connections, and hopefully deepening their own thought as well. So give me an example of some of the issues that you've bubbled up to talk about. I've done, I think, probably about 75 different online conversations so far. We've covered everything from suffering, death and dying, we hosted Arthur Brooks recently to talk about midlife and opportunities that it that offers and the constraints that start to emerge in midlife that one perhaps might not have felt as acutely before. We talk a lot about reading too, uh, reading for regeneration, reading in community. Uh, we've talked about poetry, beauty, and the imagination. Yeah, we are. I'm hosting this Friday Tracy McKenzie, who's a professor at Wheaton, on his uh, new book, We the Fallen People. 
that basically talks about the anthropology that some of the founders had, you know, their idea that actually we're both made in the image of God, but but bent towards self-interest and how some of the checks and balances reflect the fact that they did not trust people to not, in a sense, pursue their self-interest and often act unjustly if they had the power to do so and, you know, how that plays out. I talked a lot about pluralism and polarization and faith in conspiracy thinking. One of the things that has been deeply troubling uh, to me is there are a lot of, well, it seems like there's a, a certainly a growth in conspiracy thinking. Uh, and a lot of that has been fueled by people of faith and kind of what has gone wrong there within our own kind of spiritual formation that might make us more susceptible to confusion and conspiracy thinking. So have tackled a, a wide variety of topics. Wow. So tell me about the founders. You mentioned the founders. How did the, the forum get started? What's its, what's its history? Yes, we were founded around 30 years ago by Oz Guinness and Al McDonald. And I think they, the original thought at the time of the founding of the uh, Trinity Forum was that there really were very few places for leaders to gather and kind of reflect on the big questions of life, and particularly from a faith-based perspective. Uh, in some ways, some of our forums are really modeled after the Aspen Institute. But when Oz and Al first started uh, the Trinity Forum, it did consist largely of Socratic forums and the publication of various readings. And since then, we've expanded to include a whole variety of, of lectures, discussions, reading groups, online conversations, podcasts, and the like. So uh, the vision and mission is uh, remains the same, and the the programs that we use to try to uh, to further that mission have have broadened since then. Yeah, well, you talked about polarization, and uh, you know, boy, that is a a big challenge for us in the country today, and probably around the world. Have you heard any interesting? I wouldn't say solutions, but uh, thoughts about how we can begin to deal with polarization and and maybe break down some of the huge challenges that polarization causes for our society. Well, first, yes, it, it, a huge problem. And polarization, of course, doesn't happen kind of by itself. It tends to have, you know, a, a real gravitational pull in terms of other dysfunctions as well, kind of like a a black hole. So not only are we as a people kind of getting more polarized, you know, there's been talk about how a lot of that polarization is also called effective polarization, which is where uh, we're increasingly apart, driven not by our commitment to or love for a set of ideals, but rather an aversion, even a hatred for the supposed other side. Uh, and I, I do think that one of the most important aspects of trying to combat polarization is, well, it has to do with both our relationships and our thinking, of course. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. But providing places for people to wrestle with what matters most with other people, it, you know, kind of set up such that it becomes very hard just to kind of lapse into the old enmities and tribes and pigeonholes 
uh, I think is really important. Um, I also think that, you know, social media has been blamed for a lot of things, but I do think there's a, you know, an important and unfortunate role that it has played in that our polarization has been, I think, driven by as well as accompanied by, you know, a breakdown in, in other relationships. You know, we are, well, we're spending more and more of our time online. We're spending less time involved with other people face-to-face, reading, volunteering, engaged in our community. We are less likely to know who our next door neighbor is. We're less likely to report having close friends. And I think as people kind of have a thinned out community, they go looking for community in other places. And one of the easiest places to go is is online. And online, our communities tend to be formed by not shared loves, uh, but shared hatreds. And, you know, when we, when we have, you know, a community built largely on a shared aversion or a shared anger or hatred, uh, not surprisingly, that, that lead, that encourages really destructive and kind of pathological behavior. You start seeing more and more of like the the bullying and the trolling that you see online. And one of the things I think we're starting to see is online behavior spilling out into other sectors of society. And, you know, one of the big questions is like, you know, what's the solution and can it be brought to scale? And, you know, honestly, I don't know if there's a solution that can be easily brought to scale because I think part of the problem is that, we have stopped knowing each other well and loving each other well. And that's the kind of hard work that's kind of done relationship by relationship and community by community. And I think part of what the solution is, is a return to embodied community and embodied relationship. It means putting down the phone and talking with one's neighbor in person, face-to-face, and investing in friendships and relationships uh, with people who, oh, well, with anyone, but also with people who don't necessarily see life in exactly the same way that you do. And that kind of builds, I think, perspective and empathy and care. And ultimately, of course, uh, what we hope for is sort of neighbor love. Because I think a lot of what we're suffering from right now is can be boiled down to a lack of love. Yeah. Well, what you're saying reminds me of a statement my mother made to me many, many years ago. She said, son, the more people you have in your life, the more complicated it gets. And I I know she was right about that because I've experienced, you know, just what she's saying. But it didn't mean that we shouldn't have other people in our lives. It just meant that we have to be prepared and mindful of the complexity and to prepare ourselves for that. So are there clues in your mind for how we can how we can prepare ourselves for that complexity? Because what you're saying is so much easier for a person to go home and lock themselves in a room and, you know, turn on their computer and reach whatever community they want to reach. Probably people who think exactly like them. It's much more difficult, though, 
to be a part of a collective where there are is a, a diversity of points of view and interests and still feel that we're valued and important so how do we how do we prepare for that complexity i think of situations even with some of my own friends where they may want to do something or they may want to try something and it just feels to me like ah I really don't want to do that. I want to do something else. But to have a real relationship, you sort of have to give and take. And there are times when we just don't feel like giving. So how do we prepare ourselves for a life that involves loving and connecting and understanding and appreciating not only one, but two, but many others so that we can get to this place where we're less polarized and more collaborative in how we solve problems and build community. Oh, Art, that is such a, uh, that's a big question right there. And, um, (laughs) you know, in many ways, in, well, in religious terms, part of what you're asking about is the process of discipleship, you know, formation. How are we formed as human beings? And of course, you know, part of how we are formed are by what we love and what we habitually do, our habits and practices and our uh, priorities, loves and commitments. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, that begs the question, well, how are those formed well? And to your question, how can we even practice or prepare for, you know, kind of knowing each other better and caring for each other better? I'll kind of suggest that one one way to start, and this might sound you know kind of odd, but I actually think the humble book club is vastly underrated in terms of its potential potency for that. And just to sort of like unpack, in many ways, you know, a book club is one, it's hospitable. It usually involves a number of people. There's an invitation to come into one's house or at least, you know, all meet. And there's also the invitation that essentially we're interested in what everybody has to say. And it's almost, I think you could call it a little bit of, you know, basically like a civic liturgy. If a liturgy is an embodied practice that's supposed to help form what we think and what we love, in some ways a reading group kind of just reinforces the practice of listening to each other, hearing each other, valuing each other, even if we don't agree with what they've said, uh, and also looking for what is worthy in someone else's perspective, even if you don't agree with all of it. So in some ways, it is, it's practice and preparation for the the big and difficult job of living together across deep difference in a pluralistic society. And, you know, I think often there are people of faith who think that pluralism requires like, you know, a mushiness or a a lack of conviction or even cowardice, like kind of just turning your back on what you believe. When really, I think what pluralism requires are people of conviction, but who also have the humility to 
not just listen, but also know that while we believe that there may be, you know, the truth out there, our perceptions of it are invariably, you know, shaded at times or obscured at times. There's a, a verse that says we see through a glass darkly, you know, and just learning to to care for each other enough to want to hear what they have to say and to look for value in them as a person. And I, I do think that's the kind of thing, it, it certainly doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't necessarily happen naturally. We have to we have to practice it, as you were saying, aren't we? We have to prepare and we we learn to do it largely by doing it. And you know, it's the kind of thing where one often starts small and very local. Uh, and that's part of why families are important and neighborhoods are important and local communities are important because, you know, that's where we first learn to to care for people even when they annoy us and we think they're wrong about whatever it is um, and we, they inconvenience us and they complicate life. But there's, there's a real richness and value in, in that kind of complication in a life, yeah. you know, filled with all sorts of, of complicated people that I think one doesn't get with a far more lonely, solitary, but simple life. Boy, so much in what you said, I think about the book club too, from the standpoint of being able to just think, because to sit down and read, you have to produce that luxurious experience. I call it a luxury that many people don't have or take advantage of just to read something and think and consider what the author is saying. I think that time can be so, so valued. And yet I imagine not, not enough people are able to, to take advantage of that, that one tool that we have, that one ability we have to, to see into another's thoughts through their writing and to contemplate what it is that they're saying and, and see what value they're bringing. First of all, you're right. We are, we are reading less we're reading literature less. We're reading for pleasure less. We are comprehending what we read less. Reading has gotten squeezed out by other activities and particularly online activity. You know, time is zero sum. So more time spent online is, is less time reading. We tend to read differently when we're uh, online. We tend to kind of, it's much more kind of rapid, you know, almost a, a strip mining of data from, from the text as opposed to uh, immersion into a story. You know, but to your, your bigger point, you know, another thing that I think helps prepare us is actually our, our reading stories, you know, because reading well usually involves immersing oneself in the story and thinking about the characters and why they did what they did and why one would or would not do that. You know, most literature professors will say that, you know, that in many ways, empathy is at the heart of reading novels well. Empathy as well as curiosity. You know, uh, generally one doesn't just accept everything that's said. One learns that there are unreliable narrators, uh, that there are characters who are indeed villainous. So, that, you know, there's a curiosity and you learn to not just empathize with the characters, but also in, in some ways interrogate the characters and the narrator and the uh, assumption. Reading novels well, really immersing yourself into it, it is, I think, another form of 
preparation in a sense or practice in living in a society where uh, we may have deep differences with the people around us. Well, at our house, we, we host a Sunday brunch every Sunday. And I am proud to say. I love that. That's awesome. That I, that I cook, I cook the breakfast and people, you never know who's going to show up. <laughs> you know, some days it's a multitude. Other days it's just a few of us. But there's always that moment when we're together and someone will say, you know, how lovely it is to just connect and just to be able to come together and share a meal, no obligation. And I didn't think about this when we did it, but it does sort of feel anyway, like because of this brunch, we are a little more human. You know, we're a little more human when we just get together for no reason, just to, to share a, a leisurely Sunday, you know, afternoon, a few hours of our week with other people who we might not see. And so to all our listeners, if you ever want to come to Sunday brunch, just send me a note. Uh, you'd be welcome to come. Well, sign me up, Art. <laughs> <laughs> come to Sunday brunch. But I think maybe something like that is what you're talking about. What can we do that opens ourselves up to a little complexity, but potentially a lot of beauty at the same time? And that beauty can be uh, very inspiring. It can be edifying because we get to see things and learn things that we didn't know. And maybe through that, uh, we grow stronger as community and stronger as people who are able to uh, connect community and to uh, strengthen community. So just a thought. I didn't know we were going to go in this direction on this podcast today, but I'm so glad we did because I think that there are things that we can do that we don't think about that can be very powerful in building community and reducing to some extent the polarization. Even if we're all together and we're all alike, just spending a few minutes to talk about how polarized we are as a society and what can we do that's different that would open the world up to others who don't think the way we do could be very meaningful. I, I love that example. And you're, I, I mean, that's a real commitment art and that's, uh, that's wonderful. I mean, I, I think things like that, you know, even if people don't host and don't go as far as, as your, your home and host a brunch every week, you know, actual embodied face-to-face -face interaction and the, the extension of hospitality. I think hospitality is incredibly underrated in terms of just its importance as well as, you know, the joy of it all. There are so many studies out there about how we're just, we're less likely to, to know our neighbors or to say that we have friends that we can fully confide in. We're just, we're lonelier and we're more fragmented. And, and that is something that lends itself to polarization too, because when you, you know, when your tr tribes are found online um, and they're political, uh, you get your own siloed information stream. You get a real caricature of the other side. There's the the term nut picking, which is essentially used like, you know, the crazy things that the other side does are the things that are picked up and amplified and everyone piles on. And so, you know, one has 
caricatures uh, of other people. And there's something about having a meal with someone which breaks down uh, a lot of those caricatures. Yeah, there's also something really bonding about just sharing, you know, a meal or a drink or what have you with with another person. And it's it's those kind of bonds, I think, that really, you know, add so much of the richness and goodness to life. Yeah. Well, we're getting to the end, and I just want to, first of all, just thank you for agreeing to do this. But I do have one final question for you, and that is, when you think about your work and your life, do you believe that somehow or another you have been situated in this work because of how you grew up or because of how someone nurtured you? Or would you just say it was just more random that you find yourself in this job? And the reason I ask that question is so many young people out there are probably trying to think about what they're going to do next in life. They're about to graduate high school or college, and they don't have a clear sense of what happens next in their life. And I'm sure that your life wasn't charted out in any sense. And yet here you are in this really doing this really important work in some ways that could be uh, so important that it's pivotal to what leaders may be thinking and doing in the future. Tell our listeners, particularly the young ones, what they should be considering, how they should be considering their next steps in life. Oh, that's a, that's another big question, Art. Yeah. Um, these are not softballs, by the way. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, we don't want softballs. We, what we want to do is inspire generosity and celebrate giving because I think that's one way, also another way to really tear down, tear down difference. I mean, getting together and, and sharing what we have, I think as a value, it doesn't matter what else you believe, if you can imagine that someone needs help and you want to try to help in some way, or there's a cause that needs to be supported and you want to support in some way, that's something that we all can do. And it kind of brings us together around at least that common value. But anyway, back to, to the question I posed you, what do we tell young people? Well, first of all, I guess I should say that um, as a Christian, I don't believe that one's life is random. Um, you know, I, I do think, you know, there's a plan, um, you know, perhaps, you know, that can be kind of uh, exaggerated or distorted, but I, I don't think that what, what happens to us is, is random. I'll also say that undoubtedly, uh, there have been many people who have been generous to me with their their time, their their counsel, their example has been meaningful to me. You know, I've I've read before that there really are no self-made men or women. You know, we all have benefited, you know, as well as been hurt by by others' influence. At the same time, there's certainly been a great deal of of serendipity uh, in my my own career path. You know, for you know, all of my previous jobs, I was a policy wonk of sorts. I uh, worked on Capitol Hill and in the White House and in a think tank and in a federal agency. And and in many ways, this was a departure from that. It was, was not part of the plan. It, it 
was something that really captured my imagination. And looking back, I can see kind of the common threads that um, that kind of helped pull me in that direction. Uh, I've heard a lot of different leaders say that, you know, when they look back, they kind of see the logic. But, you know, when you're looking forward, it all feels very unknown and uncertain. You know, I've certainly made my share of missteps, but a lot of it has been, you, know, you do the next thing. Uh, and, you know, I think the years after college, too, are are really, you know, really helpful in that you learn a lot by by doing. And some of what you learn is what you don't want to do. Um, right. And you learn like, oh, you know, right. I, I, this is not something I'm good at. It's not something that, you know, I, I feel feel called to, or, um, you know, feel like I have much to contribute to. And, uh, it's a pretty intense time of self-knowledge and, or at least self-education. So I guess, you know, one thing like looking back, I, I do feel just really grateful for people who, who gave me counsel and would encourage young people to, you know, to ask people, um, for advice and counsel and, you know, most, uh, most people are, enjoy giving that. And, you know, I, I think that is one of those things too, where you use your own curiosity and, um, and wisdom. But, you know, if several people that you respect tell you something similar, that's probably worth listening to and, and taking into account. And most people, I think, are pretty eager to share the results of their own kind of hard-won experience and wisdom and to, you know, one, take advantage of that and lean into it and two, to lean into the doing, you know, and the flops and failures are also kind of really a, a, a rich education and, you know, like, okay, it's, um, you know, the other direction uh, and to expect, again, expect the serendipity. Um, there will be opportunities that open up that one would never have anticipated and as well as doors that are shut, you know, that one wouldn't have thought. But, um, you know, I think if um, it, it seems like it's much less of a, uh, you know, kind of steady stair step up to a, um, a destination than it is, I don't know, almost like a, a jungle, a jungle gym where you kind of swing from one thing to the <laughs> other. Um, yeah as you yeah. find your way. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. And I, again, I appreciate you doing this. That's a great answer. And I hope our young people listening and some of the older folk too, who have something to share with younger people, take this to heart and use. You've been listening to Sherry Harder, who is the president of the Trinity Forum, a great friend and someone who I admire, not only because of who she is, but because of the important work she's doing. It's been great to have you on the Heart of Giving podcast. Thanks, Art. It's been great to talk with you. Well, and to all of our listeners, I hope you'll subscribe to the show so that you can get notifications of all the episodes that come up. We are, as you know, on all major podcast platforms. And if you'd like to contribute to the Heart of Giving podcast, you can do so by making a donation at give.org, G-I-V-E.org. And that money will support the podcast and all the great work going on at the BBB Wise Giving Alliance, helping donors 
make informed giving decisions and helping charities demonstrate their trustworthiness to donors. And I want you to take one thing away from this podcast. There's so many things you can take away from what you heard today. But I think you would be enriched if you would find time each day just to think. Just give yourself a few minutes every day just to think about some issue, some matter, some concept, some idea. Thinking is something that I think we've devolved to a luxury and it should be less of a luxury and more common because I think it enriches our lives. We'll see you back here next week. Thank you for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.